Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Are you not entertained? Hello, everybody, and welcome to History in Technicolor and our special brace of Christmas editions. This is me, David Crowther, and I'm joined by my partner in crime... Me, Wolf O'Neill. Ta-da! Excellent. So, Wolf and I were talking, as you do, and we were saying, right, we'd like to do something for Christmas, and we thought about, "Mm, let's do a Christmas movie. And then somebody pointed out that Miracle on 34th Street is not a historical movie, which came as a bit of a shock to me, but apparently it's not. So, Wolf, you had a great idea, didn't you? Okay, yes, thank you, David. Um... My proposal is that we select films that we feel confident are going to be playing on television uh, over Christmas, specifically that kind of Boxing Day vibe, or Christmas Day, uh, that we think that after you listen to this episode, you'll then just turn the TV on, on that special day, and this will be on the screen. And you will slump uh, and watch it with pleasure, enjoyment, and enormous levels of fun. So that is the idea of our Christmas brace. And the first of our brace, which we're going to do today, is Chariots of Fire. So, Wolf, Chariots of Fire. Have you seen Chariots of Fire before? I have. I've seen it once. Once. Okay, great. Yeah, it's... My friend James Harris loves this movie, and then I watched it right. because of him. But it's been a very long time since I last saw it. Excellent. Well, look, there are two other reasons why I chose this to be my I Love Christmas Time film. One is that I have personal connections, which I will explain to Chariots of Fire. Secondly, because I love it. I have watched it multiple times, more times than words can wield the matter, and I love it every time. And a bit like Master and Commander, probably could watch it as many times as there are available. I'm going to start by telling you what it's all about and then we can talk about what it's really about. So, this is the story of 
I suppose they were called the Golden Generation, weren't they? Or the Bright Young Things. That's what they were called, weren't they? The post-World War I generation. The people who had managed not to go through the chaos and horror of the First World War and were talked about in the national press a lot and in Evelyn War's book, Vile Bodies, in 1930, as the Bright Young Things. And here we are looking at some of those bright young things from Cambridge University, in particular a group of them, and also another person from the same generation but from a very different background, Eric Liddell, who's the son of a Scottish missionary. The story is about the 1924 Olympics and the British entry into that Olympics and in particular the performance of these two very different men. Harold Abrahams, a Jewish student at Cambridge University, uh, played by Ben Cross, and, as I say, Eric Little, played by Il Charlson. And both of these guys enter their respective heats and, of course, do very well. No plot spoilers involved here, though. So it's the whole story about, about why they ran what motivated them to run, what obstacles they had to overcome in order to succeed at their chosen events and how they do succeed despite all the obstacles placed in their way. The film came out in 1981, which was a bit of a shock to me because I didn't know I was that old, but apparently I am. It won three BAFTAs, it won four Oscars and including Best Film in both cases. I think it beat... Raiders of the Lost Ark in the Oscars. It was directed by Hugh Hudson, produced by the very multiple famous David Putnam, who we all love. Tell me why we love David Putnam, Wolf, because you're better at that sort of thing than I am. Right, I could be wrong about some of this, but... You're never wrong, Wolf. Lord Putnam's been involved in championing the arts, at least as far as I understand, for decades. He's been involved in making television and documentaries since, I think think the 70s but he's produced so many great movies i actually have to remind myself what they are midnight express is one i can tell you that off the top of my head i know that because we watched it in sixth form film club and it was such a good movie that i actually remember watching it sixth form film club was not noted for actually watching films because we hooked up with the the local girls high school so in sixth form everybody had different things on their minds other than films. I cannot explain why, obviously. You've shocked me, David. But to answer your question, he also... He, uh, he produced The Local Hero, a, a firm favourite. He produced The Duelist. Oh, fantastic, yes. Do you know what, what is the funniest thing in The Local Hero? Well, See, now I'm going to betray myself because I've never seen it. OK, they're in a little tiny B&B in the middle of nowhere in, in Scotland... And there is nothing around, you know, for miles and miles and miles. And yet every time they step out of the front door of the B&B, they almost get run over by this incredibly noisy motorcycle which roars past them at high speed. You never see it again, but every time they step out of the B&B, that happens. And it is enormously funny. Anyway, I've distracted you. Local Hero, what else? Well, first of all, I'm going to have to watch Local Hero. As I said, The Duelists, you said Midnight Express, he did The Mission, he did Bugsy Malone. He did The Killing Fields, Memphis Bell. The, it's, it's a pretty good list. Yeah. And also, if you think about winning the Oscars for this film, like that's enough of an achievement for one person's career. Yeah. But oh, he it's also not bad, was, is it? Oh, was he in the House of Lords for Labour? I think he was, yes. 
think he might have um, been. But was never an acting politician. But he's, I just feel like he's been integral to a number of charities, organizations. He's been like a board member of a lot of things. And I, I think he's quite yeah. involved in getting people into film, the British film specifically, and kind of yeah. improving the industry and giving us a reputation. Yeah. Okay, so that's David Putnam. Everyone went mad on the film score. It is absolutely fantastic. It is by Vangelis. The opening scene in particular is a bunch of blokes in the 1920s in their 1920s sports gear running along the West Sands of St. Andrews. And meanwhile, there is... Well, it's, it's not the opening scene, actually. The opening scene is a funeral, but um, it's one of the early scenes. Uh, they're running along the sands through the water. The music's playing. da 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 and it's fantastic. And all over the countryside in 1981, in schoolyards, small boys and small girls were running in slow motion, singing that music. We all went mad for it. It's absolutely lovely scene. Fantastic. And it's sort of iconic. They're also running towards St. Andrews, and you can see St. Regulus Tower in the, in the distance there ahead of you. So it's clearly St. Andrews, although, in fact, it's supposed to be Broadstairs. But anyway... And, of course, I went to St. Andrews University, as did my unk. So that is the personal connection. It's got then got a stellar cast, although at the time not all of them were very well known. So Ben Cross is wonderful as Harold Abrahams. I don't think he was particularly well known before or since, actually. Ian Charlson is Eric Little. Then there are some people that became quite famous, especially to us Brits, on sort of TV. So Nigel Havers. We really wafted here from Paradise. Now, nah, Luton Airport. That was an advert he did once for Campari. Anyway, I digress. So Nigel Havers is Lord Andrew Lindsay, a Cambridge student runner. Very posh, very funny, very enthusiastic. Nicholas Farrell, is, who also becomes very well known in sort of TV movies and TV. And then there's a fantastic Ian Holm. He's brilliant in everything. There's Sam Mossabini, Abraham's running coach. We love Ian Holm. We do love Ian Home. We absolutely love Ian Home and everything. Then there's John Gielgud, dear, dear John, uh, as Master of Trinity College, who puts in an absolutely superb cameo role. Uh, lots of fantastic. Uh, Nigel Davenport, Patrick McGee, uh, Alice Cridge as Sybil Gordon. Really, really good cast. So, that's what it's about. That's what it is. At one level, it's about the 1924 Olympics, and the story of how two very different men succeed against the odds. Let me turn to you now, Wolf. What is the film really about? Firstly, I wanted to add into the cast, because, again, my friend James told me this, and I think it's quite interesting. The other faculty member at Cambridge, alongside Gielgud, is Lindsay Anderson, the film director who made This Sporting Life with Richard Harris. He made If with Malcolm McDowell. He made Lucky Man. He he was quite a prominent oh, member of the British New Wave uh, as a filmmaker, as a little cameo. Gosh, cool. Okay, what do I think the film is about? Quite early on in this film, I started thinking about A Man for All Seasons, which, incidentally, oh, right. my thought process was proven correct because I read that Lord Putnam had specifically been looking for a film that would capture A Man for All Seasons for 
a new audience. And as he was reading through all these stories, he came across this story about the Olympics and Eric Liddell. That's the, like, finding that story and how he refused to run is what triggered everything. And he was specifically thinking about A Man for All Seasons. So, as I had been thinking... I must admit... I find that extraordinary. I find it really quite difficult to see a particularly strong link. But okay, I take the point against, you know, obstacles and being told not to do it and all the rest of it. Yeah. I don't know how long he was searching through newspaper clippings. It's possible it had been going on for months and he was like, there is literally no other Thomas More. And then he was like, Eric Little, it's got to do. So my first point is his quest worked because he was like, I want to take the success of Man for All Seasons, provide it, give it to a new audience, and the result is he won Best Picture at the Oscars. That says to me that in 1981, the audience wanted this story. There was something about... And you might argue that it's not little-based, that it's everything that goes around it, but I think that his and Abraham's story of overcoming, like, ostracization... Mm and kind of fighting against religious prejudice is the kind of the crux of the film and is what everyone's got behind. And so, in answer to your question, what do I think the film is about? I think it's about the, the focus on the power of the individual versus institutions and organisations. In this case, well, actually, that goes all the way up to kings and countries. He specifically stands up against the future king and is like, I will not do this. Yes. Much like Sir Thomas More did to Henry. Indeed. Cambridge University comes off really badly in this film. Uh-huh. Um, even the US like Olympic team, something about the way that they're coached like a military organization um, is made fun of. And it's the individual. It's Abrahams with, with Sam Musabini, the two of them working together. That's what's inspiring. Not, this, not all the money mm. and funding that's going into the US team. It's, it's little on his own in the hills. It's the individual versus yes. the, the bigger picture. Um, and it's specifically kind of related to Abraham's being Jewish and Little being like a devout Christian and how their yeah. religious beliefs are not appreciated. And specifically in the case of Abraham's, it, it is just anti-Semitism. They're like, you actually can't even really be involved or be accepted in the same way. Little is accepted, yes. but society has moved on and they don't really want to honour his tradition of taking the sabbath off yeah i think you're absolutely right i think it's a great idea yes the the individual against the organization because all the organizations don't come out of it shining do they i mean quite obviously the university comes out of it very poorly because uh, gentle listener the they hate the professionalism of abrahams who's at the university and don't want him to succeed in what they consider to be the wrong way as a professional, by employing a professional coach, Sam Sabini. Uh, They want him to win as an amateur or fail in an amateur, graceful amateur way. And so they try to take him and they try to stop him. And Harold Abrahams sticks up for what he believes and goes through and does it. So they come out of battle. I have a question. Wolf. Do you think that when they have that conversation, that they are finding any excuse to put him down because he is Jewish? Or do you think that they genuinely do believe that all of these people should make it on their own? Um, Is the suggestion that Aubrey and Lindsay 
are not doing any training. There's no money going in. They're just a couple of guys who decided, I'll just run in the Olympics. I mean, obviously, the the anti-Semitic thing is a strong theme throughout the film, which we'll come to. In that particular scene, I think it's about amateurism versus professionalism. Although, you know, you definitely feel the anti-Semitism is there in the background, don't you? He's sort of not quite one of us. That's why he's not behaving in the, behaving in the right way. But I think he is very clearly the only person who's employing a professional coach. Lord Lindsay doesn't. He just takes to his hurdles on a nice summer afternoon for five minutes. You know, um, other people try and train hard and work hard, but they're doing it within the context of the team, not with a professional coach. So I think Abraham's is a symbol of modernity and the way we don't do things around here sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Would you like to hear about some of the other things that I liked about the movie? I would like to hear about those things, Wolf. I mean, you've already touched on a good portion of them. A first point, though. I haven't even started yet, Wolf. Good, I look forward to it. My first point is I couldn't believe until I was, while I was watching the film, just sometime later on, that after talking about William Blake for the whole of the last episode, that I did not connect that he had written Jerusalem while Jerusalem was playing at the end of the movie, which I also think is, ah. I mean, what a way to get the British public to like flock to the cinemas. Yes, absolutely. That should be the, uh, the English rugby anthem. You know, what are we doing singing the dirge of God Save the King? Anyway. That's a different topic again. Yes, you're quite right. You because you're a you're a big fan of Blake, are you? Wolf? Yeah, re- reasonable fan, but not clearly not yeah, a very good, good one. Ah. But it was just I thought it was an interesting connection from the last episode into this. Yeah, David, is this the film where that guy got up at the Oscars and said the British are coming? And interesting, you should ask me that, Wolf, because spookily, I happen to know that yes, it is. No way. Colin Welland was an English way was an English actor and screenwriter who won the BAFTA uh, for his best supporting role in Mr. Farthing in Kes, which of course is a gut wrenching movie, and he won the Oscar for best original screenplay for writing Chariots of Fire. And yes, he waved his Oscar and said, "The British are coming." Wow! I mean, classic moment at the Academy Awards. A classic moment, and of course, a, a bit of reverse quote of Paul Revere in the the uh, the, the Great Treason of seventeen seventy six. The two incidents are almost mirror images. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Anyway, we really showed so, them, didn't yes, we? Things you enjoy. Yo, yes. we took those four Oscars home. Yes, we came back. We came back in the second half. You know, took us a hundred years, but yeah, we'd just been like playing dead. It was, it was all, all, all a ploy. Yeah, playing the long game. Other things you enjoyed? I love montages. So, and a sporting oh, movie yes. is not a sporting movie without a training montage. And the training montage in this is really interesting because the scenery is completely different in a bunch of films because they're training in the same sport. You kind of maybe you get slight differences. What are their backgrounds? How are they approaching it? But in this. They are quite opposite of each other. Liddell runs through the heather-strewn hills of Scotland, um, while Abrams is, like, on the running track, um, 
with his like brand new equipment and they're checking the exact boots is this the, is this the perfect boot that will get me the win and um, they've got the timers the stopwatches like Sam Sabini his coach is giving him all this like constructive feedback and Little's just with his dog out in the hills on the beaches it's just glorious scenery a time honoured tradition and I loved it and uh, speaking of the hills, my favourite scene, maybe in the whole movie, which is possibly an indictment of the movie, is when all the midges flew straight over the front of the lens of the camera and blurred out the screen. That's fantastic, yeah. And I was like, that is an authentic shoot. I was going to bring this up in terms of historical accuracy, actually, but quite clearly it's accurate because you can barely see the actors through the screen of midges flying in front of them. So it was quite clearly, yeah. This is absolutely authentic. I also just thought, like, uh, it's fun. Like, the reason I understand why we've picked this, um, you love the movie, mm -hmm. and for slumping down in front of the television on Christmas Day, you're thinking, oh, should I go back for a second slice of Christmas pudding? It, it's only been 45 minutes. <laughs> um, the gravy's not even cold in my stomach. Should I, should I go back for <laughs> some more? And, like, this film would just be on. And it's nice it's gentle a little bit rousing um incredibly british I, I see how it works in that kind of glow of the lights from the christmas tree as you're like snoozing off i i get it i think it's a i enjoyed watching it i thought it was thought it was nice that's great and i will there are loads of other things i like about it too but i think one of the first things i'd go i'd talk about is that for me Despite all those lovely things, and there are some other things I'll talk about, uh, there is enough grit in the oyster to make it also about something rather than simply a feast of visual fun of the 1920s and all the things that went on and the way people looked and acted. So there is the strong vein of uh, anti-Semitism that goes throughout we can talk about the veracity of that, but it very clearly gives Harold Abrahams something to kick against and shows the determination of his character that he will not be held back by the anti-Semitism and prejudice that he faces. And that, that gives the film some grit. Um, and it's the same with Little, that the establishment tells him you... You've got to do what is required, as you say, for the king. And he won't play ball. There is something personal to him which is more important. And he can only succeed in the light of that. So, And also he faces opposition from his sister, Jenny, who wants him to go to the mission, stop messing around with all this running stuff. But he sticks to his purpose. So there's a bit of grit in the, the oyster there, especially with the anti-Semitism. There's a little bit more grit provided around Sam Musabini because that anti-Semitism is then extended to general racial prejudice, I suppose. So Sam Musabini declares himself to be of Arabic and... Italian? Italian heritage, that's the one, uh, even though he was, in fact, born in Blackheath. Incidentally, what did you think of Sam Musabini's accent, Wolf? I thought he was from Yorkshire at one point. But when he first came on screen, I thought he was Scottish. 
because yes. they looked like they were in the hills somewhere. And he was really mumbling. I heard nothing he said for that entire first scene. And then, like I say, later I thought it was from Yorkshire, but it, it really was all over the place. He did at one stage hit Geordie Land as well, actually. I just thought that was actually quite interesting because, well, he came from Blackheath. So if he had an accent, I don't know if he did or not, it was most likely that it's going to be estuary because, you know, Blackheath near London, obviously. And yet he's got this sort of northern accent which hops from one side of the Pennines to the other. And I, th- I think it's because of our range of prejudices, if you, if you like, or identities that we associate with accents, you know, Posh is intrinsically untrustworthy. A northern is intrinsically straightforward, honest, down to earth. Estuary is a bit wheeler dealer, bit Del Boy. And so they didn't want wheeler dealer, Del Boy. They wanted Sam Mussolini to be honest, straightforward, practical. Let's get this done. And so they gave him this kind of bizarre northern accent. I was a bit surprised Ian Holm, because Ian Holm is a brilliant actor, but a bit surprised he didn't do a better job of it. But, you know, there you go. I thought it was quite funny watching it wander around. Anyway, he's great. Sam Mussolini's a fantastic character. He really adds the grit to it because, he, again, he has to overcome this prejudice about amateurism as well as his racial background. Um, he's kind of excluded from events, the official events, as it were, and yet you absolutely identify with him. And Abraham's triumph is his triumph as well. So I think he's great. I think that's a really good element. So my point is, I mean, it's not a tough challenging film but there is enough grit in the oyster as i say to make it a bit more than a bit of christmas fun i have a couple of other tiny things that i loved insignificant things and then a question for you the sleeper train from king's cross uh well to king's cross from scotland was glorious i absolutely loved the details of the time period it was so fun when they uh, they bump into Richard Griffiths and he's working on that oh, desk. Oh, it's very good, yes, yes. I love when they dig the starting block on the track and they all have little trowels and then they stick them on, they go back and put them on the side. It's, I, I didn't know that. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? They had a sort of little package with them, including a trowel. Nice touch. It's fun to see people running in long johns, but like woolen trousers with braces and on the sleeper train, when he gets woken up and he shakes the guy above in the bunk, and he's like, tea and toast, come on, King's Cross. And he's like, here's yes, the paper. And he's great, like, yeah. you've got, don't worry, you've got one hour and then be off on your day. And it was just, yes, it, it is nice to go back to a different time, one that you never saw, and spot those little details. Yes, you want to be back there, don't you? You want to, you want to take a sleeper train like that and everything to be relaxed and comfortable with a bit more time. And the running shoes with their little sp- their spikes. I'm looking at them like they're this like long forgotten artifact. Um, yes. All the little stitches you can see in them. I'm like, are those even good for the job? There's a bit of fun in it too as well, isn't there? I mean, I agree with your thing about the montages, by the way. And actually one thing I want to say about that is when you see the American montage, everything's totally different. There's a guy going around shouting at them. They've got, they're all really well organised and they're doing energetic exciting things you know they're definitely they're really professional it really builds them up as the big opponents these are the professional guys these guys really know how it to do it against our weedy guy in their long baggy shorts so i, I thought that worked i thought that worked really well uh, i agree with you about the funniness of richard griffiths always a genius there's a bloke who's 
whose name I do not know as an actor, who also does the most delicious oily maitre d' when Abrahams takes Sybil out for supper. He is just beautiful. You ha- it is worth watching the film for the little, his little cameo of oiliness. Superb. Love it. I don't think it's supposed to be a funny movie, but it's definitely got funny bits in there. Another couple of things I loved about it also, sorry, rabbiting on, we're all rabbiting on about things we loved, but they use the language of the Bible really well. I realise this might be described as niche thing, but I think they use that language really well to bring out the fervour of Little's conviction and those around him. So just to give you one example, he does a talk, I think, from Isaiah 40 in Paris at the Church of Scotland. They actually rewrote this. Apparently the actual sermon that he did was a little bit turgid. But he uses the quote, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They really use that language well, I think. It's very opposite to the time, and it really builds the atmosphere. So I have a question for you, David. How do you interpret the Little and Abraham's relationship? And how do you feel the the film kind of creates their separate characters? It's quite interesting, that, isn't it? Because they're really quite separate. They don't really come together in a particular way. Uh, You know, they obviously congratulate each other, but they don't seem to have a personal relationship one to each other. And actually, in a way, I think that's a bit of a weakness of the film. And another another weakness of the film related to that is the fact that the thing the film you expect of the film is the big showdown between Abrahams and Little, and you don't get it, which is a bit of a cheat. I don't know. What did you think? Of I, the know, I completely agree. I completely agree. The ending is not tremendously inspiring to me. Mm. Not that I don't enjoy it, but it all feels so easy and i guess if you you want to enjoy a film kind of if its purpose is to be rewatched endlessly it doesn't have a lot of true challenges to it which means it's comforting mm. and easy to rewatch so it serves that purpose but for a film that's going to win best picture at the oscars the challenge of little being like the best athlete the one that abraham's desperately wants to defeat he's not going to run in the olympics the king is mortified everyone's like you, you absolutely have to do this mm. and then the solution is so easy Lindsay's like oh i already have one medal why don't you just run in a different race of mine he's like, yes he never says hey i've never run the 400 meters he's like sure i'll do it and yeah absolutely my understanding of the film is so much of like abraham's thinks he's a really really good runner then he faces little sort of in the midway point of the movie yeah gets trashed and yeah. it absolutely destroys his faith in himself and his ability. So then, when he gains all of this, you know, he does all the training and improving, and Sam Musabini's like, I can teach you how to beat Little. It Something doesn't make sense. And I know it's just, this, I guess, happened in reality. But when you get to the final race, and he just races against a... They, his opponent now is this supposed incredible American runner. But that... We've not seen him the whole movie. He's not really yeah. opposition. He's not the ultimate challenge. We know the ultimate challenge is little. And it feels like a bit of a cop-out when the yeah. two of them... It's like uh, everyone... Not that they everyone got um, 
just a medal for turning up. But neither of them really had a struggle. There was even in the races, it doesn't look like there's anyone close to them. They just run out yeah. in front, win the medal, and they're like, oh great, and everyone picks them up. And I'm like, it is an achievement, and I am pleased yeah. for you. You ran the 400 meters to switch from one discipline to another is hard, but that's not really why we're cheering. It seems to me to be the wrong ending. They ended with little, and there doesn't sit. They've built up Abraham's his challenge and his doubts and his failures and his work with Sam Sabini. They haven't really built a little up. He's just a genius. There's nothing he can't do. He runs like a god. He looks incredibly ugly when he's running, but um, nonetheless. It doesn't, there doesn't feel to be any danger. You know he's going to win. He's going to throw his head back. He's going to connect with the Lord, and he's going to win. He was described as, in reality, as one of the ugliest runners ever to run, or the, with the ugliest style, let us say. So, uh, Wolf, I have a question for you. What sporting achievement would you like to be remembered for? The only thing I could think of related to this was that I just did an escape room, and I was given the Unique Mind Award, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, excellent. Sounds wow. great. But I, but I got it because I tried to solve a puzzle in a way that no one had ever attempted before. Ah, original thinking then. So it is, you could, I took it as a compliment, but it's mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. an incredibly wrong way to do that right. puzzle. A way that's so wrong that no one's ever done it. Delightful. I still think you should take it as a compliment. Oh, and I do. My greatest sporting achievement was winning the under-12s cup at Quorn Tennis Club. I think there were only about three people who went in for it. They never bothered to run the competition again. And so I still have a little very small, tiny silver cup on my mantelpiece as the only trophy I've ever won. That, incidentally, was very another, another very funny bit in the movie where Eric Little does a speech to the assembled good people of the, the Highlands and he's telling them how lovely the Highlands is how much more important it is to all the other things in life uh, and he, use, he uses the phrase uh, none of the vast numbers of silver cups I've got in my trophy cabinet back home are worth this which I think is lovely, you know, just had to mention all the trophies he's got in his cabinet, didn't he? You know, a bit of humble bragging going on there, I thought anyway I found that a little funny bit we ought to move on, I suppose, but uh, there are some absolutely wonderful other set pieces I w- want to mention too. There's the College Dash, where they run round supposedly uh, Trinity Hall, although in fact it's Eton that they use, which is really full of the joie de vivre of this bright young thing's generation. Lord Lindsay brings some champers along, and Lord Lindsay is great light entertainment. This sort of happy-go-lucky, incredibly, incredibly privileged, but, you know, just has a lovely life. Uh, there's a lovely scene where he does his practising in his back garden of his enormous pile in his great parkland, and he gets his butler to set up all of the hurdles, and he puts um, little glasses of champagne on the on each one so that he can see if he touches the hurdles. Um, and it's you know it's a wonderful scene, full of the sort of lightness of being, as it were. And I also want to ask if you were going to do that, practice your hurdles, what beverage would you put on your hurdles, Wolf? I still can't decide. What drink is so valuable? It's um, got to be valuable tea. It can't just be a nice cup of tea. By the way, everybody, I've got a terrible cold, which is why I keep wheezing. I'd like to formally apologise to the wheezes. Ginger beer? I don't know. I was thinking like uh, like a nice cold 
bottle of Coke. But there you go. it doesn't... It's not really there. I think maybe it would be... If you've got one of those hot chocolates with all the whipped cream and... Right. Well, that would... Marshmallows on the little saucer. And you know when they carry it over to you in the coffee shop? And if it... Or if you're carrying it to someone in the coffee shop and it sloshes even slightly and then the hot chocolate drips down into the saucer and it's so unsightly. And you know you can't help right, it. Right, there you go. Because it's so overflowing yeah. with sumptuousness. Yes. It does mean, though, of course, you'd have an awful lot of hot chocolate to drink at the end of the uh, end of your practice. But, you know, but it sounds like a good choice. Not if me. you hit every hurdle. Good point. Good point. As I probably would. Okay. Are there any other things you loved about the movie? Or shall we uh, summarise and move on to the historical accuracy? Not really things that I loved. I'm not going to be too critical, but my, my general sense is that the film doesn't do a lot for me. I'm not right. that connected to Little's story. I'm not very connected to Abraham's story. I couldn't care less in the nicest way if Lindsay or Aubrey won a medal at the Olympics. I'm actually not sure really? how they qualified. I, I don't understand mm. the, the vetting process or how you suddenly become an Olympic athlete. It sometimes seems like you just turn up to Oxford or Cambridge and then you'll just go to France and compete in the Olympics. Even if you don't really do a lot. As in, we never see Aubrey train. But we do see him no. fall down at the Olympics and not win his medal. I guess that's why, because we never watched him train. I'm sure he did train. You got the impression that he trained. But you also got the impression that he was far too nice to win. This is what I thought was another theme of the movie, actually. That you've got to be, you've got to have a bit of steel and even a bit of a bastard to win. So Abraham says a couple of quite bastardly things. Uh, in his time and he's got the steel and they both got the steel to overcome these obstacles and the nice guys Lindsay comes second and he gets a single medal Aubrey's a lovely lovely lad and he comes nowhere um, so although they're obviously very successful athletes because they're at the Olympics crying out loud you've got to have that steel to succeed I have a question does the running on the beach sequence actually happen or is it a dream like a a vision a little, like, summary of the film that is given to us early on and then comes out at the end? Or is it just something they were like, this is just going to be absolutely adored? Because Little's there, they're all there, they're in presumably their Olympic gear, and I know they are on a team together, so maybe they are training together. But the film, maybe this is, a, the, like, the flaw of the film that you talked about. Abrahams and Little feel like they should be opponents, but then they are just, like, beloved teammates of each other who really support each other and then both cheer when the other wins i think it does happen it's supposed to be done at broadstairs broadstairs in kent so i'm assuming there was therefore a session of the british athletics team in broadstairs uh but you know you've got a bigger brain than i have as regards film so whether it's a, actually a dream sequence who knows yeah i mean it's probably yeah Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Should we move on then, Wolf, to historical Tell stuff? Tell me what really happened. What really happened. Okay, well, I mean, by and large, it's pretty accurate. You know, there was a 1924 Olympics. Tick. Abrahamson Little did win gold medals. Tick. Um, there are a lot of changes of various levels and slightly con- controversial things. So uh, I'll go through some little ones in a minute. It's going to take too long to go through them all. But the really big fib is that the film hinges around Eric's refusal to run on the Sunday and the fact that he only knows this as he goes onto the boat and yet resists all the enormous pressure that his king and team put on him. Didn't happen like that at all. They knew months in advance because the schedule had been agreed. They'd identified that it was on a Sunbury and therefore he could not run and they'd already swapped him around. So they all got on the bus, uh, went down across the, on the boat and had a, great, had a great time. None of that happened. It was still a story. So in the build-up, Little said he wouldn't run his favourite event on the Sunday. So it was still a big story and he got a lot of good press for sticking to his principles and refusing to run on the Sabbath. Nonetheless, they were able to prepare for it. So that's, I think, the biggest inaccuracy. Another more controversial one is the level of anti-Semitism. So Abrahams's biographer says, though he did not live to see the film, Abrahams, on his own testimony, would certainly have regarded such a portrayal as over-fanciful. But as somebody else has observed, even if not as overt as it is in the film, because it comes up frequently uh, and very obviously, it it must have been an issue in Abraham's life, given that anti-Semitism was so strong at the time. And there are other reports of him writing home at public school in Bedford, particularly saying that, no, he really got hammered at primary school for his Jewishness. So there's a feeling that maybe the film emphasises it more than it was publicly around. Nonetheless, you know, you've got to believe it was still an issue. His relationship with Sybil is very important. And of course, a lot of that happens around Gilbert and Sullivan. Are you a Gilbert and Sullivan fan, Wolf? I would say no, but not because I dislike them, just because I'm mostly not familiar. But they can set a time period nicely, and I can appreciate that. Yes, I did, didn't they? I mean, they aren't... They're nowhere near as popular as when I was young. Well, that's our impression, anyway. Because, I mean, we used to go to loads of them, and I haven't been to a Gilbert and Sullivan for, I don't know, decades. But I did really like the way they used it. You know, the singing was fun, and actually, Gilbert and Sullivan were very funny. Anyway... I think that that adds to the flavour of the movie. But Sybil, sadly, didn't meet Abrahams until 1934. So all of that was a complete fib. I'm fuming. Wah, wah, oops. Didn't happen. Fuming. There's a major howler in the movie, which is, I ask you, Wolf, what happened to the bit of paper? Jackson Schultz came over, handed a bit of paper to Little which kind of had a, a quote, something like, um, who honours the Lord is honoured, or something like that. A nice line. 
He picks up the piece of paper, he gets down to run, he has the piece of paper in his hand. When he finishes, you never see him drop it. When he finishes, there's no piece of paper. I mean, that has got, somebody's got to lose their job over that, don't they? Some continuity guy. I assumed, first of all, when he holds it, crushes it in his hand, you can interpret it one of two ways. He's either holding it tight because it means so much to him, or he knows that if the other members of the USA team discover that he is trying to inspire and help an opponent, there will be consequences. Ah. So maybe it's secret information that has to be kept secret. So Uh, 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 I don't uh. think he can just drop it on the floor, which is the reasonable answer, because people would see. So I think he has to eat it mid-run. Right. He could eat it when he's thrown his head back and he's... His mouth is open, and instead of receiving the Spirit of the Lord, actually what he's doing is shoving a bit of paper in his gob. Can you imagine if, actually, like, when he opened it, it was just, you're the ugliest runner here, and it was, like, um, an opponent's tactic to, like, throw him off? Yes. I mean, alternatively, since he's got his little trowel, you know there's that bit in the film where he falls over and yet unbelievably gets up and wins, which apparently did happen, by the way, not on that particular race, but it did happen. Um, so good a runner was he well he fell over pretended to fall over dug, dug a little hole with his trowel buried the bit of paper and then got up and won the race again I think that's what could have it happened it could have happened he could have done anything I think he could have stuffed it down his pants could have done anything he could put stuff down his pants could, have, could indeed have done um, apparently the bit of paper was given to Little but it wasn't given by Jackson Schultz it was given by the British team so another slight inaccuracy as well. The film starts off with a fib. There's a, it starts off with a church service where Aubrey was there as one of the few people who had still been alive. In fact, he'd have looked a good deal worse than he did, and he didn't look great anyway because he'd been dead for 30 years. Lindsay didn't exist but was based on broadly on someone called Lord Burley or, and was created when Douglas Lowe, who was a third gold medalist, didn't take part. Famously, the Great Court one run was filmed at Eton. Uh, another outrageous one, actually, Abraham's in the film. You get sort of the the right build up. You know, Abraham's loses the two hundred meters. Oh God, it's terrible. He's awful. So he's all going to lose, and then wins the hundred meters. Yay! And actually, having the other way around, very anticlimactically, Abraham's won the hundred meters, which was run first and then lost the 200 metres, which would have been the wrong way to do the film. Jenny Little, his sister, was actually very supportive in real life throughout. And I know that she was very closely connected to the movie, actually. She comes across in the film as a real sourpuss, and I think if I'd been her, I'd have been a bit cross, because she was apparently very supportive throughout the process about his, his running. I mean, that's enough. You know, basically... There's a whole list of inaccuracies, but I think all of them forgivable within the context of making a drama rather than a a historical record. I don't know what you think. Well, I was going to say, on the point you made earlier about the authenticity of the anti-Semitism, it's clear, we are talking about a movie here, and a movie that is... as. You would presume, but even from just the slightest bit of research on what I mentioned about the kind of Putnam's origins of this film, it's designed mm. to trigger an emotional response. It's designed to have key themes that are 
clear. You've had two main characters and their stories are kind of running in conjunction with each other and then they're going to overlap. So if Liddles is it's written down in the history books, you know, he was unable to race because it was the Sabbath and they wouldn't let him run because of his religious beliefs, then they have to increase um, Abraham's religious struggle to counterbalance. So the two main characters are equally as important. That being said, as you already mentioned, I think it's very plausible that it would have been a personal motivator for him, even if he didn't talk about it, or even if it wasn't something that was made overt. I don't think we're deluded enough to how racism works and prejudice works. And it's, especially in somewhere like Cambridge University, and in all these institutions, it's underlying this this current that that you you would be aware of. Um, But my point was to kind of be like, yes, this this film is, is... specifically designed in every way the music is one of those key factors the running the scenery it's all designed to produce this emotional response and this Mm. national pride which is kind of carried on through the award ceremony culminates in these speeches these the trophies that go in their cabinet for it i don't know you know when you can sometimes tell i'm not suggesting it doesn't mean it's not good but you can sometimes tell that that it's been orchestrated to win. Yes. It's interesting, actually. Um, I think that's absolutely right. You know, they think, okay, I'll put this in because they'll love that. Um, I think the world's worst movie for this, apropos of nothing, is War Horse. The film... Was that what a terrible Steven movie. Spielberg. Oh, a terrible movie. And he just thought, right, you're manipulating. It was so obvious. Right, you're manipulating me here. I'm not, I'm not going to play. You know, I absolutely hated it. They just overdid it. They kind of led on with the trial here, but I don't think to quite that extent. Do you know what other movie came out in 1981? A movie that you love? Ooh, I do not know. Uh, well, there was Botham's Ashes in 1981, of course. I've watched that billions of times. We have done this on the podcast before. Although... Have we? It tells me it's 1981, but now I'm trying to remember if it came out as a TV series originally, before it became a movie. Maybe this. And it's from a different country, so who knows? But the answer is Das Boot. Ah! Do you know, I was about to guess that when you said it's a TV series. Because, gosh, I love that TV series. Can you believe that this one... I mean, I know you love it, but this one over Das Boot? Yes, I mean, that's, that's, that's clearly criminal. Clearly criminal. Anyway, I think we've delighted the audience long enough. In summary, shall we mark the film... Yes. Quality of the film in numbers. I I would give the movie a six. I mean, for shame, a six. I mean, come on, you lily-livered man. Well, I'm going to give nine, okay, so we're clearly going to difference. This is one of the great movies that I thoroughly enjoy. I kind of buy your point that maybe it's not, it's not particularly weighty, you know, it's not great art, but... If you're going to recover from the uh, Christmas Brussels, I can't think of a better movie to watch on a Sunday, on a Christmas Day afternoon. And then when Sam okay. when Sam Musabini smashes the top of his hat in after yes. Abraham's wins, you absolutely. can tear up your Christmas cracker hat. I can absolutely do that in association with uh, Sam Musabini. Right, uh, historical accuracy. I defer to you. I, I mean, it it sounds reasonable. Um, 
So I've been thinking it's like a, a relatively high score, and I think we understand why things are altered. Yeah. And also, we, like, the film is kind of altering just the meaning behind certain facts. We know he didn't run on that day. The film is just choosing to make everything simpler and clearer by making him not know, and then it plays into the theme. Um, I think so. It's got to be at least a seven, I'd have thought. Something like that. Also, with that, with that discussion about whether he, he knew or didn't know, like, it kind of doesn't change the, the fact that he would have raced in that race. Yes, it doesn't change. And it doesn't change the fact that he very clearly refused to run in his favourite event because it was on a Sunday. And that was a, a, a national and public issue for which he got a lot of regard. You know, that what it was a notable thing about the 24 Yeah, games. they did have to go to plan B. He just was able to train, presumably, yeah. to do the 400 metres. And he was prepared for it. Yeah. But they didn't... They still weren't going to do anything to enable him to race the race that he wanted to. No, indeed. Indeed. Okay, and would you recommend anybody to go and see this film? And if so, why? Would I recommend it? I think I probably would. I don't know. There are lots of there are lots of really nice things about it. If I rate it low, it's not because I think it's a bad film per se, but because it doesn't really connect to me or inspire me in any meaningful way. It just kind of is, is there. It's pleasant. I enjoyed it. Probably won't watch it again for another 20 years, but, you know, that's fine. And when I do, I'll have another perfectly pleasant Sunday afternoon doing it. It's very British. It's it's nice. Yeah, good. Right. Well, I, um, you know, I, of course, rate it much more highly. I think you have to kind of leave your class war uh, feelings at the door and your, you know, modern socialism, because it really is, you know, a bright, thunk, young things, stiff up a little British Empire type thing. So you've got to leave your cynicism about that sort of thing an objection to it at the door, otherwise you're not going to enjoy it. If you can do that, there are lots of great things in it, lots of great set pieces, lots of fun. There's a bit of danger and a bit of effort. There is some thought, and you can wallow in the nostalgia, the brilliant music, the lovely scenery, and the feel-goodiness of it. I think it's a, a wonderful movie. We should go for a blustery beach run and film it for the listeners. We should. We should indeed do that, and we should do it in slow-mo. Do you mean we would run in slow-mo, or we would... We would run in slow-mo, because, uh, you know, we've got, to, we've got to recreate the schoolyard in 1982. <laughs> I'm sure no one along Brighton Beach will be watching and wondering what we're up to. I, as soon as this is, they'll know, and they'll start singing Vangelis. Anyway, enough. Love to talk to you, Wolf. Obviously, a bit of a difference of opinion about the movie, but, you know basically watch it on christmas christmas day if you get the chance everyone and come on to facebook and tell us what you thought and tell us what you thought of the film too thank you very much for listening goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me thanks everyone bye-bye are you not entertained Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.